Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CME curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hi, my name is Manesh Patel. I'm a cardiologist at Duke, and I'm joined by a friend and colleague, John Pacini, the director of our EP section. John, thanks for joining me on this update on antithrombotics from ESC. Oh, it's great to be here, Manesh. Well, it was a busy SC, and it's always great to get back into meetings and seeing each other and actually seeing the science. And the science is certainly back. Lots of stuff going on with antithrombotics. And maybe the hottest area at ESC was around factor 11 inhibition. John, maybe you could just start us off by telling us a little bit about what the theory is behind factor 11 inhibition. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it, it's really exciting. You know, factor 11 inhibition, obviously, as you know, Manesh, offers the possibility of inhibiting the intrinsic pathway and thrombin ap- uh, amplification without impairing uh, coagulation mediated by tissue factor, um, which is helpful because uh, bleeding initiated by tissue factor is often the response, you know, we require when we experience trauma or disruption of, of uh, blood vessel intima. And I think some of the most promising data in factor uh, 11A inhibition that I, I think is just really neat and exciting to think about is when you look at population data and you look at uh, genetic variants that are associated with decreases in factor 11 activity, those same individuals uh, at the population level have a lower risk of thrombotic events, including thromboembolism and stroke. Um, and so that's the whole premise behind these compounds. So it's it's very exciting, the opportunity to prevent thrombotic events at a much lower risk of bleeding. Yeah, so we were we were at work, work together a little bit on the Pacific AF program, John, maybe, uh, you know, that was presented ACC, and it, it was obviously a study against a Pixaban, a phase two study, maybe just a brief on uh, what your take home was from Pacific AF. I know you yeah. had the ESC to sort of re- recapitulate some of that at a, at a symposium with Lancet. Yeah, no, there was a ton of um, science presented at ESC, but you're right before that um, Pacific AF uh, completed. And, you know, the hypothesis was if we compare ostindexin, a small molecule factor 11A inhibitor, to a direct acting oral anticoagulant like apixaban, will that lead to a reduction in bleeding? And, you know, it's interesting, uh, the, the bleeding rate in the trial was half the projected rate, which just goes to show that, you know, you know, event rates keep getting lower and lower and lower as care gets better. But even with that, you know, 50% of the projected bleeding rate, and even with enriching the population for bleeding, we saw that ostindexin was associated with a significant reduction um, in bleeding relative to apixaban with excellent suppression of factor 11a uh, activity at peak and trough. So yes. the take for me is, is that, yes, it appears the um, uh, lead to less bleeding. And now we'll need a phase three clinical trial to to test whether it can prevent stroke effectively. Uh, and we'll see the same uh, benefits in prevention of bleeding. So ESC had some data on um, on the uh, both Milvexian, which is a different factor 11 uh, um, for a stroke, and the same drug, Asindexian, for a secondary stroke prevention in patients who had stroke. What was your take home on the Pacific side? And maybe I'll speak on the axiomatic or the Milvexian side. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, again, Manesh, I'm an electrophysiologist, so you know, my my interest is obviously in heart rhythm disorders, and so by under no circumstances would I consider myself an interventional cardiologist. Obviously, not, um, since I have not been trained in that manner and don't follow the literature as closely, but I remember sitting in the audience for Pacific AMI, 
Uh, and and as you know, these patients, um, you know, they bleed all the time. And I was blown away that factor 11A inhibition uh, in those patients did not lead to increased bleeding. I mean, I just, you know, going back all the way to my fellowship, every single uh, ACS trial, it seems that, you know, there's always increase in bleeding risk. And so I was really struck by that. I just remember sitting in the audience and being like, these data are, you know, so incredible. Yeah, powerful in the sense that on top of DAPT, uh, asyndexin didn't increase bleeding compared to placebo, or at least very similar rates at the, even in some of the higher doses. So I think encouraging, obviously, not as much of an efficacy signal, but it's phase two. And a lot of people, you know, are having conversations about that. We know that phase two for efficacy is really not, if you believe in the compound, something we're going to follow and see. And we've seen other therapeutics where phase two didn't show much of an efficacy signal and then showed a huge, so safe and reasonable to go forward. I'll just highlight for the stroke studies, you know, we saw- Yeah, the, I, I, you got it. So what do us heart rhythm docs need to know about Pacific yeah. stroke and, and axiomatic? You know, it's interesting. One of the things I'll say, again, not as a stroke neurologist, I told Valeria Queso, her, her colleague, you know, is a neurologist, interventional cardiologist, last person to talk to you about stroke. But what I have learned about stroke is that a lot like heart failure, it's a it's a grab bag term, right? We think about heart failure as one condition when we know there's a lot of underlying conditions. Same thing for stroke, you know, a carotid stroke, an embolic stroke, a middle cerebral artery stroke, or small vessel lacunar infarcts might be totally different pathophysiologically. And I actually think that's what we saw in some of these studies. In fact, in, in at least the Pacific stroke study, we saw that the patients who had lacunar infarcts or small vessel strokes, or we were looking for covert strokes, small non-symptomatic strokes, didn't see much of an efficacy signal, but for those large vessel strokes, those probably what I'll call atherorelated strokes, not only did we see reasonable bleeding signals, but we also saw possible efficacy, both with asyndexian and then a dose-response relationship. Not exactly clear. We saw it sort of with doses, the 200 twice daily dose seemed to be the most outlier for the um, axiomatic. But again, some dose response and again, safety with bleeding. All again, information that tells us in a very untreated population, patients with secondary stroke who right now get DAPT and then maybe just monotherapy antiplatelet, big opportunity. But with these opportunities, we might have to be a little bit more careful with the phenotypic description of who should get benefit. Well, John, this has been a great update from the ESC. Thanks for telling us about this exciting area. I guess I'll just say uh, for both of us now, um, the whole field is ready. Now, a lot of investigators are ready. We're going to have to find out which of the phase three studies are going forward, hopefully many of them. But I do think there's a lot of opportunity still for our patients as many do not get therapy when they have a stroke or they have atrial fibrillation. Certainly, interventional cardiology still looks for ways to improve our patients. Thanks for joining me on this update on antithrombotics for ESC. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME Incorporated, and is part of our Minute CME curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.